What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Essential 11. As always, brought to you by Acton Academy. Acton Academy, Placer, Apogee Strong, and our friends over at Discover Praxis. Check out discoverpraxis.com for your post-high school graduate. Uh, today's guest uh, was for an Apogee call, and it's a gentleman that I have nothing but respect for, have followed his journey for a long time. Uh, the man is named uh, Mr. Mike Glovers, former Special Forces uh, Green Beret, 18 years in the U.S. Army, multiple deployments. Uh, I believe he deployed 14 times to, to various war zones. I uh, was a CIA operator. I uh, was now a highly successful entrepreneur uh, and just all-around bad man. Uh, and, and he gave a lot of wisdom, uh, a lot of advice to our young men from Apogee Strong. So I think you're going to enjoy Mr. Mike Glover. Right on, Thanks brother. for having me. Man, thank you. Much appreciated, brother. Um you got a bunch of a bunch of studs from around the world right here that that uh, Tim and I get to work with. Uh, these are our young men, man, that are just committed to being better. So they're going to kind of join in on the call a little bit and listen for a little while, and then they'll jump on with a few questions before the hour ends, and they'll have better questions uh, better questions than I will, man. So awesome, yeah, man. Where where are you today? Are you home in in Utah? Yeah, I am. It's rare that I am home, but I'm I'm uh, teaching a class tomorrow in uh, utah so i'll be around this weekend um, and then back on the road next week right on man very cool very cool brother well dude i'm super appreciative um we have you know amazing leaders on but you're a gentleman that has has absolutely served our country you know more than uh, most men ever have or ever will and so super grateful for that and grateful for your voice man and and you um continuing to to speak out on all the things you do man so really really grateful for all of that no, thank you. Thank you. It's it's the least I could do. I appreciate it, man. So would love to uh, kind of dig into the Mike Glover story a little bit, man. We got young guys on here from, you know, 12, 13 up into their early 20s. And uh, we'd love to just kind of start and kind of go back to when you were, you know, 13, 14, young buck and, uh, and just kind of who were you and what was your mentality and kind of take on your trajectory a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, that's, that's um, you know, I started very young, um, at a very young age with this idea that I wanted to serve in the, in the military. I mean, most percentage wise, most people who serve in the military come from a long line of military history. So, uh, my dad was in the army. My uncle was in the Navy and I grew, I was born at, in Fort Ord, a military base. And then I lived with my dad overseas in Germany for the first part of my life. And then knew from a very young age, I'd say around as young as I can remember, seven, eight, nine, I knew I wanted to be in the army. And so everything that I did, whether it was athletics, um, my mindset, even pretending or playing, you know, at the time we didn't have airsoft, we had just toy guns and we used our imagination. Um, from as young as I can remember, that was my thing. So I joined the army at 17 years old in the infantry. Um, I went to uh, airborne and ranger school at 18 years old, um, was a guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at 20, or at, actually at 18, but got my badge at 20, um, was a sergeant in the infantry um, at the age of 20, um, and then spent the remainder of my career from September 11th, which was uh, when I was 21 years old, all the way until 2016 uh, in the Army. So. Um, pretty much did as much as I could do in the Army. Uh, everything from sniper to joint terminal air controller. I was a team sergeant. Um, 
I was a reconnaissance expert in Delta Force. I was a, a sergeant major um, in 19th Special Forces Group. And then at some point I decided that I was going to kind of transition my operational experience. And I did. And then I worked for the CIA for about three years. Um, up until that point, which is about the 2016 timeframe, um, it was all operational and it was all high-speed life. And then in 2016, I decided I wanted to uh, start my business, Phil Krause Survival. So rad. Dude, what a freaking journey. How uh, I feel like it's kind of rare to know so early on that, uh, that you kind of wanted to go that route. I imagine you got that military upbringing and the military family. You had a ton of support, I would imagine, then from, from parents and family too, right, that are, that are encouraging you to, to go that route. Yeah, I mean, I grew up. I grew up poor. I didn't. We didn't have. Uh, we, didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of the academic options. It, you know, at the dinner table, there was no discussion about college because nobody in my family went to college because they were all blue collar people. They were hardworking Americans that joined in the, the military and then served in some capacity, but most of it was blue collar work. So for me, it felt like the only option and. If, even if you were to present a case for, for academics, I, you know, I wouldn't have been interested in it early on because the only, the only option for me. Yeah. And so, and so you mentioned kind of even tailoring, you know, athletics and everything was kind of geared towards that. What, what did that look like in terms of your discipline as a young person working towards that, whatever athletics you were taking on. And I've got somewhere I kind of want to go with that and a reason I'm asking, but what did that look like for you? Was that something that you just kind of inherently like was like, man, I don't have to worry about motivating myself. You were just disciplined at attacking that. Or is that something that, you know, you brought up and then dad's like, all right, but well, you better get your ass in gear and, and get out there and run. Or, or what did that look like for you as a youngster? Did you have that discipline? Yeah, I, I think it was, I mean, I don't remember my dad really having to tell me a lot of how to get set up for specific things. Like I, at a very young age, I pay, I played uh, flag football and then Pop Warner football, and then um, junior varsity and varsity football. And I, I actually wasn't interested in sports. I mean, I had, I, I'd had, no, I, I had no dream of becoming a professional football player. My dream was being a special forces guy. And I, I knew that physically I had to be in shape and I had to have the right mindset. So I always felt like even when I was playing football and was doing very well, I was doing that for my special operations career because, you know, I, I looked at it even as a young age, I went, well, one's playing a game and one's playing it for real. And so I want to play it for real. Um, and you know, no, no offense to athletes, but I think that sets you up for something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And um, I had that mindset the entire time. So everything from baseball to football to, uh, martial arts, um, I kind of wanted, I kind of was like living the lifestyle, even at a young age of, um, school was just school. And then everything extracurricular was my way of becoming a better operator. Yeah. That's what I was doing at a very young age. Yeah. You were already early in on, on that mission and setting yourself up for that. That's rad, sure. man. I, I love that. And I love the fact, I mean, you're talking about going into the army at, at 17 and, and kind of that trajectory and, and, you know, what you're doing at 20, um, for me, that 
speaks directly to so much of what we're talking about with these young guys. You know, there is a, I'm, I'm curious to see what you think about this. You know, I've, I've worked with Fortune 500 companies forever, and the reason they bring me in usually is because they're going, hey, we're hiring all these guys out of Harvard and Stanford and MIT, and they're really, really smart, but holy shit, they suck. Like we want to, we want to get rid of them. There's no drive. There's no motivation. There's no work ethic. There's no maturity uh, and and uh, culture of personal responsibility. Um, and it's it was enough to where I was getting brought in nonstop. And the U.S. Air Force ended up being one of my clients, and they were going, man, we're almost feeling like we need to lower our standards at some point to allow for more people to come in. Do you think there's been this kind of trajectory for young people where? You know, we're kind of getting away from that personal responsibility and, and the drive and physical fitness. And, and, you know, if so, what do you think is kind of contributing to that? Well, I mean, it's the, the contribution factor is really easy to see. I mean, it's, it's social media, it's the Internet, it's virtual reality versus real reality. I mean, when I was growing up, my dad kicked me out of the house and said, hey, come back when it's dark. Yep. And I played with my neighbors. I played football. I played street hockey. Uh, I played hide and seek. I played war. I did all these things physically. You look out into um, urban and suburban America and you don't see kids out in the streets at all because one, it's, it's deemed it's too unsafe, yeah. right? I mean, you see kids playing in the streets of Iraq still. Yeah. Streets of Afghanistan. But here it's deemed as like, Hey, you don't want your kid to get kidnapped. Um, molested, mm -hmm. trafficked, um, or or um, violently attacked. Yep. We insulate our children and then we keep them indoors, and we don't know our neighbors because why would you have to talk to your neighbor when you could text them, when you could DM them? Mm -hmm. So, a lot of kids nowadays are living living virtual paths or lives that almost feels as satisfying as actually living that life. It's why we have a whole bunch of emulators and actors. Uh, pretending to be Navy SEALs, where you yeah. have Instagram influencers pretending to be gunfighters, and they've never put on a uniform. They've never served anything besides themselves. So it's it's the same chemical process, by the way, is part of that part of the reason why that feeling is the same, mm -hmm. and they're satisfied with that. So you know that's why we have these organizations where we have to continue to push and motivate people to realize, like, yeah, you could. You can swipe through Instagram posts of these cool guys who've done it for real uh, until you're blue in the face, until you run out of followers. But if you actually want to experience a journey, a life, you, you have to put your phone down. You have to get outside. You have to ruck. You have to run. You have to be physically fit, get the right mindset, and, and volunteer. Like, raise your hand to do something bigger than yourself. Um, and that's the hardest thing to convince people of because, again, we're combating a we're combating a business system that is meant to um, take advantage of your time and optimize your time with psychologists and doctors and everything else. So that's right. It's a, it's a difficult war to fight. Man, I think that's so, um, I think that's so important for people to understand. Like we get, you know, and obviously working with parents, you know, quite a bit. And, and um, Tim and I were talking about this. We were on, he and I went on Jason Kalipa's podcast last Friday and, and Kalipa said, you know, this last lack of physicality for, for our young men is really almost ultimately becoming this national security matter, you know, because of just the mindset that it is that is shaping within our culture. And um, but what you talked about there with the yeah, we know that there's a time suck that is built into that. 
But what you touched on was the fact that it's also checking off that box for our young men. They scroll through and they see other people live it or they jump on and they play, you know, Call of Duty and they get really good at Call of Duty and completing those missions. And it's checking off that kind of DNA box in our head where us as men, we grow up, we want to go conquer some stuff. We want to have a challenge in front of us. We want to go like that's just in our nature. We want to move aggressively towards a purpose. And that's kind of the sneaky part of these video games. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's fulfilling that for us so that we then lose the drive to go out and, and like you said, raise our hand. Um, I think that's an important part, man, that doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. I think stack that on top of, um, family units being broken apart. Yeah. I mean, people nowadays think that, uh, uh, a family or having kids or having a spouse it's too taxing because I mean, you could, if you run into somebody and you don't like them, you just swipe them left instead of swiping them right. And so we're, we're used to this temporary idea of family in the first place. And then you look at COVID and everything it's doing with the, you know, the, the communities and churches and then, and gatherings of people doing what they typically do is build, building real relationships. Mm-hmm. So again, we've defaulted to the, the virtual version of that. And it's not good enough. It's not going to get us through. It's not real. And I think society, what I like is this is causing society to be woke to a new idea that maybe we're doing it the wrong way. I think that's important. Yeah, I think it is too, man. So good. And, and that, that physicality you're talking about too, you know, getting out there. And, and I mean, I was, you know, we grew up around the same time. I think I'm a little older than you, but I mean, outside and you're outside and you're playing war all day and you're playing with your buddies and you're playing, you know, smear the queer and you're, and we're just getting out there and we're getting after it. And there's no necessarily parents around. We're not worried about that, but there's a lot of learning that takes place there around your own physicality, your own place in the pecking order, how to negotiate, how to talk, how to really actually make friends, all those connections. Um, but there's the physical component too. I mean, we were outside actually running around. Um, do you, uh, Zach Evan Esch. Have you ever seen that guy? He's kind of old school uh, trainer. I know he's like a high school football coach in Jersey, but he's been around for a long time. Um, and he posted something the other day, and it was a letter, something like a letter to JFK uh, about soft Americans or something like that. And it was really a, a conglomerate. It was a, it was a whole bunch of letters from people like Jack LaLanne and, and current, um, not current, guys that were currently speaking out, and this was in the 60s, and they put these letters together to send to JFK about their growing concern with the lack of physical fitness and grit and mental toughness and physical toughness that they were seeing in young people. Um, And it was really prophetic because they're putting all this stuff out there and they're going, hey, you know, we we think that if we kind of keep going down this trajectory, well, 50 years from now, you know, we're going to have this really detailed kind of the society that we're seeing right now. And um, I mean, they were spot freaking on man um so a big part of the component for these guys is taking on that physical is taking on that physical side and and really learning through through physicalities what does that kind of physicality look like for you obviously you'd be in great shape going through special operations and um you know now as you're traveling and all that kind of stuff how do you still incorporate that physicality into your into your day-to-day yeah i i've always you know like i remember being a a young infantry guy. Like I remember I was 18 years old and I was training up for ranger school and 
all the guys in the infantry, which is known as a drinking culture for the most part, were going out getting wasted on Friday night. And while they were going out getting wasted, I was put on a rucksack and going rucking, getting ready for ranger school. And so uh, it, it, it really stems back to individual discipline. Like, how bad do you want it? And I wanted it really bad. And so I had to be that guy in that, in that situation where you know, everybody's like, well, how come you're not going drinking? And I could see it on their face because they, they really were envious that I had the discipline to go, I'm not interested in that, yep. man. I'm not interested in shotgunning beers and puking and then waking up feeling like crap. I don't want that in my life. And I never really have. And, and so for me, it was an easy transition. And that's always been a mainstay of my life, which is uh, functional fitness. Yeah. Like, I, like, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'1", 240 pounds. I've always been a big dude. I'm not interested in looking good for the, the women. Like, I don't care about that. What I'm interested in is my ability and function to operate and to get stuff done. And so when I was in the military, when I was a sniper, you know, even being a bigger guy, when we started going to Iraq, I got five trips to Iraq. We started building, climbing all over the place because we had to get high to provide support for the assaulters. So we had to climb buildings, two and three story, with tubular nylon, with ladders, with ropes. So if I had a big upper body because I was hitting the flat bench, which is really impractical, then I wasn't um, at my best. And so my level of fitness as an operator was directly correlated to my survivability. Mm -hmm. And if I, and more importantly than that, not my personal survivability, but the, the ones uh, uh, of my left and right, my brothers and, and arms. And if I couldn't carry them off the objective or you know, pick their big butts off the objective to save them, then I wasn't doing my job. So as that evolved into kind of my position now, I still think about that. Yeah. And I go, I go, hey, I'm sitting here advocating for people to get off their butts and to be prepared to, you know, pick up your spouse and carry them out of harm's way. If you can't do that uh, and you have the capacity and the capability to because you're healthy, you're young um, and you have it in you and but you're just lazy, that's unacceptable. So I, I do more functional fitness like I just got done with a, an Idaho elk hunt where we walked about 40 miles in three days, uh, came straight back and did a 10 mile ruck on September 11th, uh, in honor of, uh, all those who gave their lives on nine 11 and, you know, turned back around and was prepping for another hunt that I'm doing on Monday. So now it's part of my functional fitness in my life where I'm hiking, I'm rucking, I'm running, I'm doing calisthenics. But again, I'm not doing this to impress anybody. I'm doing this for my lifestyle. And, and and to be better prepared ultimately which is what it's all about man i mean that's that's absolutely i remember jocko talking about it as like a a durability and he's saying you know it doesn't you can look like the you know you can look like whatever you want to look like and you can be the porsche that's out there but when you're out you know on the farm or you're out on the ranch you want a four by four so that you can throw some shit in there and that you can you know you can actually do some work and it's more yeah. about that kind of durability man i think that's exactly it yeah i love that so what is what is kind of day-to-day -day look like for you now and gentlemen i, I know i 
I don't want to monopolize time because I know you guys are going to have questions. So if you've got questions for Mr. Glover, I want you to go ahead and put your hands up um, and I'll start uh, bringing you guys into this too. But I wanted to see what, what does kind of day-to-day look like? Because now you're you're transitioning, you're running a business and there's still this crossover with, um, you know, your journey and all the things you've you've done. But what's kind of the, uh, what's kind of the focus for, for you in the entrepreneurial world right now? So, I, I mean, right now my I'm teamed up with Black Rifle Coffee to change culture. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what we're doing isn't selling t-shirts and hats. What we're doing is trying to affect culture on a big scale. So, you know, on, on the retail side, I mean, every, every black rifle coffee that he, that is from here until the end of history, we're in six right now, we'll be in 13 by the end of the year and That's 35 awesome. by the end of next year. Uh, so we're selling products that make you better prepared, but we're also getting out there and doing the training. I mean, we'll, we'll train 10,000 citizens, uh, this year. And I'm looking to double that for next year from survival, from tactical. So I, you know, my, my daily routine includes, like I had a meet with tap med solutions this morning on the, on the soft tea, they got a new soft tea tourniquet. Uh, and I want to get it in civilians hands. So I want to educate civilians. I want to podcast, uh, medical experts. And then I want to, um, provide that solution for people. Um, uh, everything from doing podcasts to, to going out to fly out to some flying out to SIG next week, then flying out to TACMED Solutions um, that same same week. Then I'm flying to Hawaii to teach a course. So it's a combination of you know running 50 employees, running a pretty pretty um, broad company, but then also stand relevant myself in the space. You know, I I enjoy teaching. It's probably not smart for the CEO of a company to be out in the flat range, but that engagement for me is important. So uh, I do it like tomorrow I'll be teaching pistol, uh, Sunday I'll be teaching uh, carbine and then Monday I'll be in the office, uh, planning a session on how to, uh, best affect training in 2022. So it, it's pretty nonstop for me, man. It's a, I love it, it's man. a grind that after deploying to war and losing brothers and, and going through these cycles of trauma, um, that, that are meaningful and significant for me to give more hours to working doesn't feel like work to me. And I, and so I, I, you know, all these soft people who are like, Oh man, I'm just busting my butt. It's like, no, you're not, man. That what you're doing isn't hard. Yep. Nothing you're doing is hard in America. Um, all the hard things are, are serviced uh, overseas in, in austere environments. You're not doing anything hard. No doubt, man. No doubt. Yeah. It's a perspective. It's a perspective. Everybody needs, man. That's awesome. I love that. I love, you know, the next uh, iteration, Tim and I are going down to uh, we're going down to Mexico in December um, with a couple other guys, Bedros and, and Mickler and a couple of those guys, and, and just sort of talking about the next iterations of all the things that we've got going on. And um, a part of Apogee's trajectory is going to be to build out the program to where we're incorporating courses like the ones you're teaching and courses like yep. what, what Sheepdog's doing and, um, That's right. you know, and getting these guys in the Squire program and just it's to a to give as much as we can to the young guys before they've got to go and, you know, maybe get that perspective through serving before they do raise their hand. We want to give them as much of that perspective now early on and build that foundation as possible, you know, so. Yep. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's good stuff, man. All right, Mr. Kaleo Cardoso, you are up, sir. I'll let you have a question. Thank you, Mr. Glover, for coming on. I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, my question for you today is, what was your most influential mistake in your past? Um, 
that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think, I think one, anybody who's a leader, um, and wants to improve upon himself and then influence the people he leads needs to be willing to share that kind of information, even though some of it's dark and intimate. Um, it's important because it helps others. Um, look, when I was, when I was in the military, um, I had hangups on in specific units that I served in. And when I went to Delta force, I tried out for Delta force and I was one of four people out of 150 people who, who got through selection, who got through the process. And that that's a high attrition rate. So it's almost, I think historically it's the highest attrition rate in any Delta force selection ever. Uh, one of the reasons that was is because we had a snowstorm that came through. And so on the last day we walked 40 miles, I walked 40 miles with a 80 pound rucksack and walked for 23 hours straight. Um, and again, I was only one of four people that, that got through that. When I got to the unit to combat application group, I had a personality conflict with a guy who was a troop sergeant major. So he was a senior leader and he didn't get along with me. I found out later that he, he actually told people that he hated me and I had never had that problem in my entire military career. I had won every leadership award in every school that I went to because, um, I felt like I was born to be a leader. And so I took that serious at a very young age. It wasn't that I, I pretended to be a leader. I, I never had that imposter syndrome. I felt like I was a leader. And so I was comfortable with leading. But when I got in that circumstance, I've never experienced somebody hating me, especially my own community. So that experience for me, which included that person wanted me to go on probation for a period of time, um, where I walked away from Delta Force and then came back um, was super impactful because for years afterwards, that happened in 2007, for years afterwards, I, com I constantly questioned myself. And until I realized that in life, um, things are not always objective. Sometimes they are subjective. Sometimes things are out of our control. And so in this position, this person had the ability to control or navigate my life for me. So he forced me to take a different path than I wanted to. And so I, I was resentful for that. I was angry for that because I was like, this one person changed the trajectory of my life. But now I look at my life and I have a successful business. I'm making profound impacts on people. I have two beautiful children. I'm living my dream. And if that didn't happen to me, because that one person's hangups with me, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. So um, a lot of the times we get, we start focusing on the now and we get bogged down with the things that are outside of our control. Instead of lifting our head up and like looking at the horizon and navigating our future in the now. So the, the lesson learned for me is don't, don't allow people to control how good you can be. Um, you're always going to have bullies. You're going to have naysayers. You're going to have negative and toxic people. But what you do have at your disposable uh, or disposal is your control and living your life in your own way. Mm. That's never going to change, by the way. I've had many versions of that person in my life along the way. And as soon as I identify that, I cut them out of my life 
And it's been the most impactful behavioral change that I've ever made. Because once I see that, once I realize that and I cut them out, it saves me days, weeks, years even of heartache and pain and staying positive and focused on my mission. So thanks for asking that question. Mm. Thank you, sir. Great question and, and even better answer. Um, the objectivity versus subjectivity uh, kind of conversation is is fascinating to me too. And how how much, just out of kind of my own curiosity, how much, you know, we, you tend to look at uh, special operations and, and really a lot of the military in general as more of a true meritocracy than many other organizations um, tend to be, at least from an outsider perspective, um, you know, you tend to tend to do that, right? And I know coming out of education and kind of the whole college game and, you know, people applying to Stanford, it's not exactly the meritocracy that everybody thinks that it is. There's a little bit of that, but there is some of that subjectivity in there and there's a game to be played. Um, within the special operations community, do you have less of that kind of politicking and, and more meritocracy um, than you would in other places? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a spot-on question, given the given the political climate. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of young men ask me, Mike, I want to serve, but based on the political climate, what should I do? And when I tell them, like, it's a it's a little complex, but the the gist of it is, when you're serving in a capacity where you're doing real things, including um, life or death or diplomatic positions, where you're changing national strategy. You're you're protecting national security. Yeah, there's a political play because policy drives um, intelligence initiatives and and agendas. But at the tactical level, all of the things that you do are very binary. They're yeah. ones and zeros. They're they're black and white. Yes, we live in the gray. But they're black and white, and they're very analytic. So. These guys are philosophical. These guys who have radical ideology. These guys who are over political, um, and and trying to disseminate or or affect that yep. into their administrations or whatever it is. You're not really affected by that. So if the idea is to serve because you want to be the guy on the ground, then do that. I mean that's why you ask most veterans like, hey, what was it about? And yeah, it's about. I mean, um, uh, honoring America and patriotism is given. What it's about is to the men to your left and right who you're protecting and serving because you're just trying to get out of the gunfight. And, and I think that's an important thing to hone in on because it's not subjective. It's very objective and it's very real. And I think that's where you start to lose people because when you look at uh, colleges, for example, where you have one professor who's professing his ideology, radical or not, it's his ideology. It's based on his experiences. It's not based on potentially real life facts of war. And so I, what I would say to people is you have a perspective. And if it's, if it's a perspective based on one person's idea, it's probably the wrong perspective. The best perspective is a worldly perspective, understanding how human beings operate and live all, all around the world, where, where poverty is real, where crime is real, where war is real, where famine is real. And it will give you a different perspective of how to live your life. Because I mean, if, if you don't realize it, you should. If you're an American, you are the most wealthy uh, and, and, and matter of fact, spoiled human being on the planet by virtue of you being born into a constitution, a bill of rights, 
and, and freedom. True Nobody else has that opportunity. True and, story. and it's very, it's very real that way. True story. Well said, sir. Absolutely. Trey, you're up, sir. Thank you for coming on this call with us, sir. Um, and my question was, if you could only have one skill, then what would it be? I, I, uh, I appreciate that question. Um, I think I would say mindset, but it's just not mindset. Mindset sh sells really good on a t-shirt. Um, mindset is a, is a catchphrase nowadays, but what I mean and mindset is resilience. What I mean is your ability to bounce back through adversity, through difficult challenges. Because it, it's not a matter if you, if you get knocked down to your knees or, or to your back, because that will happen. What matters is what you do next. So um, building resilience is not difficult. It's, it's challenging yourself by simply exposing yourself to things that you're not comfortable with. That could be going camping. That, be, that could be doing exactly what you're doing now where you're willing to learn. Uh, that could be a workout of the day where you're challenged physically, which pushes your mental resilience. And I think uh, the number one statistical probability of surviving a catastrophe is your ability to adapt. And that has a direct correlation to your ability to be resilient. So mindset is resilience. Uh, resilience is bouncing back through adversity. And bouncing back through adversity is adaptation. If you have that skill set because you've tested yourself, you've made yourself uncomfortable, and you've gone through that process, you are more likely um, to have a strong mindset. And I think that's the one skill set that I have that I would retain because everything else that's technical is easy to attain as long as you have that resilience. Mm. Beautiful. Beautifully said, sir. Aiden, go for it, sir. Hey, thank you, Mr. Glover, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And the first thing I wanted to say is even thank you more so for, for not only coming on, but for uh, a while back starting an American contingency, because I wouldn't be on this program right now if it wasn't for that. Uh, back about a year ago, it's actually, it, it's funny because that's how my mom found out about this program. I know that since then, uh, American contingency is uh, relatively shut down to, to the best of my knowledge, but that, that wasn't my question for you. My question for you was through all, all of your time in service, through all of your time in austerior uh, conditions, austere conditions, is if you had to pick one thing, one thing that you learned through all of it and you had to encapsulate it in one word, what would that word be? Oh, interesting question. Well, let me, let me first off say um, thanks for tracking American contingency. The objective was always to empower people to make decisions on their own in their own lives. I was never going to hold people's hands as a sergeant major, or go QRF um, people across the country in a little bird. The goal was to teach them, hey, here's some basic principles of preparedness, and you got to go out and get it. Um, AmericanContingency.com and members.americancontingency.com still exist, but in a very small form factor. Because like you said, we've been targeted. Um, um, unjustifiably for me standing up and saying something because I'm the radical, right? Because I'm willing to stand up and say something. So, you know, the, your question based on all my experiences in war, based on all my experiences in austere environments, um, I would say um, if I had to break it down to one word, it would be um, 
let's just say right. Um, the, the word is right. And, and let me contextualize this. The, the reason I would say it's right is because I thought I was right most often because I had the training and the experience in war and combat. And I, I thought that my solutions based on training were the right implementation of my tactics on the ground. And what I learned in combat that's very uh, comprehensive and very complicated is that you're not always right. Um, um, just because you learn doctrine, because you shoot M4s and wood in the wood line uh, and you play mock wars, doesn't mean when you actually go to war that your right is the right and you have to be humble. Maybe the word's humble. Uh, I was in Afghanistan um, in 05 where I had a fire defense plan where um, if we were getting attacked, I would have all my special forces guys run to the top of the building and defend against a direct attack. And all my Afghans would hit the wall because we were in a remote fire base. And the first time that we got attacked, um, it not only involved direct fire, but it involved um, indirect fire, including 107 millimeter rockets. Uh, at one point, I was on the rooftop with a machine gun with one of my, one of my guys. And we received a 107 millimeter rocket that almost took our heads off, impacted right behind us and blew up a fuel, um, a fuel supply point, which could have been catastrophic. I mean, and it would have killed us instantly. But I had an idea because of my training and I was humbled really quick in realizing that I could play or pretend like what I was doing was right or I could humble myself and stop and admit that I had made mistakes and actually make it right. And so I, I did what was right. And, and often, a lot of people have this confusion about this idea, this virtue. Um, there is often 99% a right solution versus a wrong solution, and that's, that's black and white. So in that case, it was like, hey man, if you continue to do this, you'll get somebody killed. Or you could stop, you could admit that you were wrong. You could change the fire defense plan and you could adapt. And I did that. And so that happened early on in my work career. And thank God it did. Because if it didn't, I would have been that guy who I saw many times in war saying, hey, man, this is the way we're doing it. It's just because. Somebody told me, I'm telling you, and we're not changing, we're not adapting. And often they paid uh, for that mistake. Uh, typically with the lies or with injuries of others. So um, great question. Um, I would say the word is likely humbled or, or right, but it, it was a life lesson for me that I, that I uh, continue to talk about because um, I hope you fix those mistakes early on in your life and admit to that right or wrong uh, and change. Yeah. Very Thank much. you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome, man. Yeah, well said. And that transitions over, you know, obviously perspective matters. That transitions over to everything and not, um, you know, I mean, as running a business, same thing. And you're going, hey, I, you know, this was the decision that, that it made, but we're going to we're going to turn and we're going to make that right because this no longer is is relevant to what we're doing in the business. And this is where it needs absolutely. to go. Yeah, absolutely. You know, very much that. That's awesome. Uh, Mr. Will Graves, go for it, sir. Uh, thank you for coming on today. Uh, you mentioned that you were a guard um, at the tomb of the unknown soldier. What was the worst weather that you ever had to guard it in? 
and what is the prep time like and what is the overall what is the process for that yeah so uh, you know it's crazy because a lot of people know me because of my special operations career or my GRS career but you know the origin story of my military career I wanted to be an airborne ranger I had an airborne ranger contract and I kind of got duped out of that because you know recruiters suck I mean that's just how it is <laughs> but um I made the best of it and I wanted to be the most elite, even if I was in a unit that I didn't want to be in. I mean, I didn't want to be in a ceremonial unit. Um, I actually, when I first got there, I fought to get into a scout unit, a scout platoon, so I could be op four for range battalion so I could learn unconventional warfare. Um, and then I realized, Hey man, there's no way out of this. Just do your time, but do it the best of your ability. So I went to airborne school. I went to ranger school. I got my expert infantry badge. And then I tried out for the two of the unknowns. Um, the two of the unknowns, you go there and you try out. It's about a nine month process to try out that nine month process happens to be one of the highest attrited selection processes in the military. I mean, the most difficult badge to earn in the U S military is the astronauts badge. Cause there's not many of them second to the two of the unknown soldier badge. Um, when I tried out, I'm, I think I was the only one out of my peer group that made it. And nine months later, I got my badge awarded. So when you go to the tomb, you have to earn your walks. You don't just get an opportunity to walk. And one of our mottos is my standard will remain perfection. So everything we do, it has to be perfect. The walk, the uniform, our ethics, our values, our knowledge of the cemetery and the history of the tomb. And so I took that very seriously. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, Look, I, I'm not a, I like cold weather. I'm half Norwegian, uh, half Scandinavian and half Korean. Um, and I, I adapt really well in cold weather. What I don't adapt well is in hot weather. And when you're standing on an open slab of marble um, in the middle of a hundred degree heat in Washington, DC with 90% humidity, it, it's difficult for everybody. Um, so, you know, I would sweat through my pants that were made of wool. Um, I, I'd almost be a heat casualty. And a lot of times I was suffering in silence, but I remembered always telling myself like, man, the suffering that you're going through is nothing in comparison to the men and women who not only gave their lives, but gave their identities for a country. So you could sit here and feel sorry for yourself and the gnats are by, you know, bouncing off my eyeballs and my sunglasses. Uh, the, the sweat is dripping down my face and tickling me. Um, and I'm just suffering. But that's nothing in comparison to the big picture. So I really learned how to find my happy place and how to be very disciplined. And um, it, it made me better. Uh, it made me stronger. And honestly, selection, even Delta Force selection, wasn't hard. Uh, what was hard was standing and guarding the tomb doing seven walks a day during the summertime, suffering constantly as a new guy to earn that tomb identification badge. Delta Force selection was three weeks. Special Forces selection was 20 days. That's nothing in, in comparison to the big picture, and I'm glad I did it. Man. My standard will be perfection, or will remain perfection. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's that's uh, that's solid. How did, as a as a leader who has come from that background and had that perspective and, and, um, you know, is 
refuses to play the victim and, and is able to find that happy spot. How has that transition been as you're leading, you know, civilians within the business now? Do you have a hard time leading when people don't have the willingness to put out um, from a civilian standpoint? Is that something where, you know, as a leader and you got somebody that's come through and, and sometimes they're bringing, you know, problems and, and you know, even, even coming at it with humility and understanding, hey, even at right now as a leader of the business, I may not be right here and I want to empathize with what their plight is. Is there any part of you that ever goes like, oh my gosh, like your problems right now are not, these aren't real problems? I mean, do you ever struggle with that? Yeah, for sure. I, I've, I've adapted and adopted different tactics in leadership because leadership can, can evolve. It can mm -hmm. progress, sure. right? I mean, when you're leading one person or when you're leading a a squad versus a platoon or even a, a special operations detachment or company like I have, it's a completely different type of skill sets required in leadership. Yep. A great example was when I was 20 years old, I went to PLDC. It's called a warrior leader course now, but it's E5 school, it's sergeant school. Yep. And so I was a very young leader. I went in the army as an E1, got um, identified as a 17 year old private that, hey, this guy's showing leadership attributes and got promoted to E2 in basic training. Got to my unit, did a whole bunch of high-speed stuff and got promoted to E5 by the time I was 20 years old. And when I was a 20-year-old leader, I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky. And in Fort Knox, Kentucky, you had infantrymen like me. You had 19 Deltas, Cav Scouts, which are still combat arms. And then you had females. And I realized, like, hey, man, I, I grew up in a – and, and combat arms and the infantry, there was no females back then. And so when I had to deal with females in PLDC, I realized I needed to change my tactics because conventional um, tactics and attributes of a combat leader will not work against a female who's an administration clerk, who's a finance clerk, uh, who joined the military because they want to get the college benefits, not because they want to potentially serve their country or go to war. So. Um, how that, how that's evolved is when I manage civilians now, I have to have a soft hand and I, here's, here's my critique of a lot of people who come to me, even special operations guys and also team sorry. I would have guys come to me and they go, man, this guy's a pain in the butt or this guy sucks or this guy is this. And I always, I would always say to them, if you're coming to me with a problem, you need to have the solution. And if you have a solution, my question to you is why haven't you executed the solution? Yeah. Because if you're a team guy and you have failed to control your environment, because that's what we do in a regular warfare and unconventional warfare, you've already failed. So anytime that you have conflict, I look at it as a, as a failure. And so what I've instilled into my people is the ability to work with people through problems before they come to me with the bigger problem. Because if they haven't navigated that conversation with basic principles of human behavior, like, hey, maybe I should just collaborate and reciprocate communication and we could work through it, then it's bogging me down as a leader who needs to make this. So um, that has been complex at, uh, over time because people from different backgrounds and experiences are very different. And so their incentives, their desires, their needs are all out of whack. So if you got a money guy who's incentivized with money, but he's not incentivized with community, it's a completely different set of attributes to, in order to lead them. Yep. I, what I would say is 
if you want to become a good leader, be prepared to be flexible and be prepared to have empathy for people. Because the bottom line is people are screwed up, man. Yep. People, <laughs> including ourselves, yes, we're, they're just screwed up. And so you're never going to get perfection, yep. accept that, and then be willing to navigate and work with people to make sure that you lead them in the right way. So true. Yeah, very well illustrated. Um, does that, how, how do you, you know, when you take a look, one of the questions always that we got from young people that I ask on the Essential 11, and um, if you've got a young person who is coming in and they, you know, they say, hey, Mr. Glover, we really want to come work for you. We really love what you're doing over here at Black Rifle. Um, we want to come be part of the team. Are you proactively looking to try to figure out somehow if they're going to bring, um, you know, certain attributes to the culture so that you can kind of proactively go, okay, well, this person is going to, you know, bring some of those basic principles of humanity in here and I'm less likely to have to deal with these issues. This person is solution oriented. Like, what do you, you know, you got a young person, so one of these guys, 18, graduates from high school, comes says, Mr. Glover, I want to work for you, man. What do you, you know, what are those attributes you're going to kind of look for to go, okay, man, I might take a shot on this kid. Yeah, but the number one attribute for me is loyalty. Mm. And uh, that's a life attribute as well. I mean, yes, I look sir. for it in, in people around me. Um, it's, it's loyalty because here's, here's what I know. Young people look at my company or even me as a you know, persona, an influencer, or as a, or a person if they know me. And they go, I like this guy and I want to be involved in this culture and all this stuff. But it's because they they're getting um the snapshot the clickbait and, and often what i find is people for short periods of time are on board because it's popular yeah but then then they get to know me and realize like hey man th this dude isn't this isn't just a um a instagram post or a youtube video yeah this is a constant grind yep this guy's in it for the long haul this company is in it for the long haul so I have a lot of people who come in here and they, you know, they ship for me and they're doing shipping and they, they have a grand idea where they have, uh, they want to get more deeply embedded. And I say to them, I go, listen, the people around me that you're potentially criticizing or the things that you want to change have been around me for years. You have loyalty. You say that now, talk to me in a year. And what I've seen in young people is Everybody wants instant gratification because that's the MO. That's how we're used to operating in social space, right? You want to be the tactical instructor, but you haven't done anything tactical. You know, you want to be the, you want to be the influencer, but you have no experience. So be willing to invest the time and, and the consistency in that time in anything that you're doing. So if you're a shipper and you work for me as a shipper, but you want to move up in my company, be willing to ship, keep your mouth shut, and do it right and consistently right for a long period of time. And then the investment in that for me is enough to go, look, it's, you come to me and you go, Mike, I've been working for you for a year. I haven't messed up one package and I haven't done anything um, to disrupt what this is doing and I'm loyal. I'm here 10 minutes prior and I leave 10 minutes late. Then we'll have that conversation. Until then, what I tell most people is I don't want to hear it. Like I got a million people knocking on our door that want to be part of this. But if, you, if you're not willing to come in here and, and, and have the discipline to do the hard work and be loyal to the company and to the, and to the purpose for a long period of time, then, then you're not the right person for me. Uh, skill sets can be taught. Technical things can be, can be taught. That's the easy part. 
the hard part is the virtue that go, goes behind that. Love that. Yeah, that is awesome, my friend. Uh, Will Graves, this is going to be the last one so we can honor Mr. Glover's time. So last one, Will Graves, go for it, sir. You had also mentioned that you were in the CIA. Uh, what was your position and what is the process like to enter in what's the process and training like to enter uh, the CIA? I know it's a long process. Yes, this the CIA was the long goal for me. I mean, look, if you if you serve in any operational capacity in the Central Intelligence Agency, it's because you have a background in special operations. Even as a kid, I knew that. So technically, my special operations career, I was checking a block. Now, I enjoyed the journey. I did as much as I could, but I, my end goal was the CIA. Now, when I joined the CIA, I had finished my college degree, which is the prerequisite to actually join the CIA as a full-time person. They really don't care what degree you got as long as you got a degree. My degree was in Homeland Security and, and, and Crisis Response. Um, as a bachelor's degree with a, with a second degree in criminal justice. And that took me 15 years because I was operating. So I had a nickel and dime my degree. When I joined the CIA, I wanted to be a PMO, a paramilitary operations officer. And, and that's known as a ground branch officer uh, mostly. I mean, you can go on CIA.gov and apply for that position. But to apply for that position, you have to have a minimum time in the military a college degree, and really operational experience. So when I joined um, and I was trying to do that position, I actually got recruited when I was overseas. They recruited me. So I was in the pipeline to do all of that. And then the sequester happened, which was basically a political and um, um, uh, it manifested itself into a, a stop uh, hiring freeze on all government positions. So then I was in law, I had to wait. So I got out of the military to go in the CIA. And then they're like, hey man, there's a hiring freeze. We can't hire anybody, so we'll make you a contractor. So when I went to apply, uh, they said, hey, you could do GRS or you could do ground branch with the ground branch uh, contracting position. I had to wait six months to get a slot to train and then six more months to, to go into uh, um, to operational mode. So I said, man, I can't, like, I don't, I don't have any money. I mean, I'm, I'm out, of, out of a job. I'm a part-time SF guy. So then they offered me a GRS position, a global response staff position, uh, which was what I did. Um, if you see, see the movie 13 Hours in Benghazi, all of those guys, that was what I did overseas. Um, as a GRS guy for direct hire, you had to have six years of special operations experience to apply. As an industrial, uh, you had that four years. And so when I went, I had to get vetted. So I went through a couple of weeks of, ex of an experience where you have a resume, but now you got to show up and prove that everything you said on your resume is true. So they give you a gun and you got to go zero it. And then you got to do the qualification. They give you night vision and the laser. And then you got to go do the calls and they got to prove it. And I remember, I remember one guy showing up and he goes, hey, are we going to get a block of instruction on how to use this? And one of the guys was like, no, 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 no your resume showed that you had the experience to do this. There's no training for this. You show up, you mount not night vision, you grab your gun and you shoot the quals. The qualifications, I will tell you this because I know it because I'm a federal law enforcement uh, training instructor, are the hardest, most difficult qualifications in the federal government. FBI HRT, FBI uh, instructors, 
DEA, uh, even U.S. Marshals. It's the hardest call in the U.S. government. Um, we had a very high attrition rate. I think I went with 15 guys, and probably half of us, seven or eight of us, uh, made it through. Um, after you get through the calls, then you do training, and then you're operational. Uh, I will say, out of all the jobs that I did, uh, the CIA was the best job I've ever had. Uh, I was operational, which made me feel relevant in the big scheme of things. Um, and I felt confident that all the guys I was serving with were the most capable operators from, from DevGrew, from CAG, from SF, from Rangers, the most accomplished and most uh, competent human beings I've ever served with. Um, and I wouldn't take it back. It, it, if I wasn't doing entrepreneurship, which is kind of the progressive cycle in my life cycle, um, I would be doing that job and loving it. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Mr. Glover, if I have one word for you, sir, it is just, again, it is just gratitude. It is gratitude for, for the journey, gratitude for, for what you've done for our country, what you continue to do for that continued voice. Um, we will launch this as, a, as an episode of The Essential 11 as well, which goes out to, to parents and young men all over the world. Um, where would uh, we have them go to help you and help give back to what you've got going on in any way, man? Where can we send folks for you on your behalf? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, all of our valuable education is free. I mean, you could train with us, that's fine. You can go to philcraftsrevival.com and, and get products and everything else. But I most encourage you to go to our podcast, uh, which is the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. Go to my personal podcast called Mike Force because I've interviewed CIA guys, yep. uh, the dog handler on the Bin Laden raid, a whole bunch of accomplished people because you could learn through their experiences and, and save, get the Cliff Notes version to save you a lot of uh, effort in the understanding of their experiences. Uh, also, you know, my, my personal Instagram is mike.a.glover, and we have Philcraft Survival, Philcraft Mobility, Philcraft Survival Fit, a whole bunch of uh, free things all over social media on how to get educated and being better prepared. Um, so I have no ask. I, if you want to support me, um, support, you know, support yourself, support your family and your community and being better prepared. That's how you can support me. I love it, brother. Couldn't agree more, man. Thank you. Thank you. You guys give a big thank you to Mr. Glover for his time. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That's awesome, man. I appreciate you, brother. And um, I'll reach out a little later if, if you don't mind and get an address from me. I'd like to send you just a couple small things, man, just as a thank you for, for uh, spending time with these young guys, man. It means the world. Yeah, I want to say thank you for having me on. And um, I'm proud of you, young men, for stepping up and being willing to be exposed to uncomfortable things that's going to make you a better person, uh, a better man, um, potentially a better service member uh, in your community or in the military. It's a big and impactful thing that we need in our country. And without you and your ability to do that, um, I, I'm not sure how our country would look. So I'm, I'm proud of you guys, I'm proud of the organization. Um, I love Tim Kennedy. He's a, I used to be his boss. We went to sniper school together. Um, um, I'm proud of you guys for stepping up when nobody else will. So thanks for having me on. Grateful, brother. That's awesome, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, sir. There you go, man. Follow Mr. Mike Glover. Uh, go check out Fieldcraft Survival, Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, and love to support good humans doing good things. And, and uh, he's doing that in all of those places. So check that out. And continue to check out the episodes that are coming through with Essential 11. Share those, review those, all that good stuff. Because it just helps us help the young heroes. Appreciate you all. See ya.